When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Welcome to Namaste Motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy and well-being collide. I'm your host, Callie Beaton, and this episode is called New York, New York, It's a Wonderful Town, and it's all about show business, and in particular, the business of comedy. According to 18th century man of letters, Horatio Walpole, the world is a comedy to those that think, a tragedy to those that feel. Well, somebody for whom comedy has not been a tragedy is Jerry Seinfeld, who is the world's richest comedian, and he is closely followed by Larry David, who, by the way, is one of my secret crushes. Well, not so secret now, I've just said it, I guess. And um, Larry David, closely followed by David Attenborough. Sorry, not in terms of the comedy league table, in terms of my secret crushes. Yes, David Attenborough, the oldest convert to veganism. Well, apart from my late grandmother, but that was more because she had things growing in the fridge. Now, talking of David Attenborough, if you need something cheering, look up the Comedy Wildlife Photography Awards. There are smiling frogs, jazz hand squirrels and sea turtles flipping the bird. I promise you it's better than cat memes. In the words of Max Miller, Comedy is the only job you can do really badly and people won't laugh at you. So I'm feeling like, you know, 80%. Okay, well, you know, a lot of my podcast guests, we do well if we get them to 80%. That's my guest today, TV and digital media guru, Dave Bernath. Apparently, if you watch a sad film at the cinema, you'll eat 55% more popcorn than if you're seeing a comedy. And to round off today's comedy trivia, here's a quote from one of my former podcast guests, national treasure, Arthur Smith, who said, there are three basic rules for great comedy. Unfortunately, no one can remember what they are. Yeah, I mean, you know, New York has been very, pretty open pretty early. I mean, even my my teenagers have all gotten two shots. Really? Wow, that is impressive. I got to know Dave when we were both working for Comedy Central in New York, where he was a very big fish, and I was just pleased to be swimming in the same pond. He's had a strong hand in launching the careers of many big on-screen comedy names, including Stephen Colbert, John Oliver and Amy Schumer. Among his many accolades is the fact that he brought the UK version of The Office to the US, which went on to win the Golden Globe for Best Comedy Series. Dave and I talked about Saturday Night Live, Life in New York, Netflix, Comedy Central, 9-11, Giuliani, How to Make It as a Comedian, left brain, right brain, and singularity. But I started by asking him about New York Governor Cuomo's fall from grace. 
even when he was having his daily TV moment, you know, the fact that he's was sort of historically a bully and kind of problematic as kind of a, you know, politician from birth kind of got forgotten, you know, during the sort of, he's the hero of COVID, even some of the early missteps in COVID got forgotten. And now we're being swung back to be like, oh yeah, I guess he's, he's a problematic guy maybe, you know. So, so was he known, obviously I don't want to be litigious on my own podcast, but was he known for being a bit of an asshole before this happened then? I mean, you know what? I can't speak that uh, definitively, but you know, his father was the governor. He's the scion of a New York political royalty, you know, hardball tactics. There's always been a lot of push and pull between the state government and the city government. And, you know, uh, certainly known as a, as a, as a rough and tumble, you know, guy, not genteel, you know, hard nosed politician. Um, and he grew up around it, you know, from the time he was a kid. So. But still not as bad a reputation as your ex mayor has got at the moment. Yeah. Which ex mayor? Well, I was thinking Giuliani <laughs> particularly. Oh God. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I'm reading this book right now, which any of your listeners who love New York should read. It's called New York, New York, New York. And it's basically a history of New York from the mid 70s until now. And it goes through the Koch eras, you know, New York dropped dead, all the things around the 70s through the revitalization, the 80s, Giuliani, 9-11, Bloomberg. And, you know, I always heard about Giuliani as a non-New Yorker. I've only been here for 17 years. And, uh, you know, you heard about like broken windows policing and there's a lot of bad things, but a lot of good things and maybe stuff that was quote unquote needed, you know, that came from him. But reading this book that goes through his earlier career when he was an attorney general, he's kind of always been pretty sketchy and questionable and an egomaniac and, you know, just, uh, you know, it, it's certainly gone off the rails with dye dripping down the side of his head and the way he <laughs> championed, you know, stop the steal is, you just can't even believe this guy was an actual legitimate mayor. But in terms of a thread back to his volatile, unpredictable, ego-driven, you know, petty, all that stuff, he was like that 20 years ago. Yeah. And, and, he, and he had a very checkered up and down time as mayor uh, here. And, and somewhat like Bush in the early part of his, you know, uh, administration, 9-11, the tragedy that it was, like Cuomo and COVID gives these Pauls a chance to sort of recast themselves and be seen in the light of how they stand up and do certain symbolic and meaningful gestures that aren't without merit, but they kind of cover over everything else a little bit. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought of the parallel because as you, it, well, I should say for um, anyone listening that you and I know each other from both working at Comedy Central together some years ago. So we'll talk about that. And back in, uh, yeah, when 9-11 happened, I was working for MTV back in those days. And I remember flying into New York from London just very few weeks, maybe three weeks after 9-11. And there were mm -hmm. so few people coming into New York at the time from overseas that when I checked into uh, whatever hotel I was in there were I mean I'm sure he hadn't handwritten them but there was a letter from Giuliani for every single overseas oh, wow. visitor say maybe also for every visitor from outside of New York I don't know um, but saying you know thanks for coming to our city and believing in right. coming back to our city and it was I remember sort of at that time he was kind of a hero but it's hard what did you guys think about the uh, we will start talking about you in a minute Dave but what did you think about the Borat the sequel movie what was the what was the feeling on the ground over there about it and the the Giuliani setup scene 
Yeah, you know, I just real quickly uh, going back though to 9-11 and speaking of comedy, if you recall, you know, another one of these moments that cements a certain sense of a person in the culture was the first, you know, SNL episode. And yeah. he and Lauren came out in the first 10 seconds. And basically Lauren said, is it okay for us to be funny again? And Juliana said, yes, you know, and then they went on. So that again, one of these signature cultural moments that he's associated with, it's okay to laugh again. I'd completely um, forgotten that as well. Wow. And it seems yeah. like such a, well, I guess it is a long time ago, but I'd never thought of the parallel with Cuomo and COVID and uh, what went with Giuliani and 9-11. And I guess then these guys also end up on a world stage, don't they? Doing something heroic and everyone abroad would have no idea of the nuanced career or the sleaze or anything that had gone before that. We just know what we see in right. the headlines during a, during a crisis. So yeah, That's very right. different world you're living in since then. But there's quite a few uh, interesting names that people in the UK, where lots of our listeners are, but we have lots around the world as well, are going to be quite interested in knowing that you had a hand in getting onto our screens. But I wanted to start, at, you, you, you were responsible for bringing The Office over to the States, right? So, um, and that's when you worked at BBC America. America. So yeah, t tell me a bit about that stage of your life. Yeah, you know, Paul Lee, who great British television executive who had started the channel um, and went on to run ABC, you know, one of the, one of the great expat reverse, you know, here in the States from a British executive, he was running BBC America. And, you know, I was, I think it was my first week on the job. And he said, you know, there's a show we passed on it. We thought it was a little too inside British culture, a little too narrow, a little too niche, but you know, we'd love to know your thoughts. And it was the office season one. And, uh, you know, I flipped for it. I thought this is, you know, universal humor, cubicle humor. Dilbert is a famous comic strip over here that takes place in a kind of generic office mm -hmm. setting. And uh, I said, Paul, this is, this is great. We should, we should definitely bring this over. And so we acquired the first season. We had an output deal with BBC, so it was very inexpensive. And, uh, you know, it immediately caught on with the press. And then we, we helped co-produce the second season and that led to the Golden Globe. And um, so it was, uh, it was a great experience. Lots of comedians listen to this podcast and everybody's trying to work out, of course, how can we have the next version of The Office? That kind of understated, ironic fly on the wall stuff, would, did that fly immediately for Americans? Well, I think, you know, we were a little cable channel. You know, we brought over the original Shameless, you know, the State of Play series Paul Abbott did. Like, you know, a lot of things that were... Um, not necessarily broad, as you would say, from a TV perspective. So The Office never really did fantastic numbers for us. It was a bit of a prestige, quality play, get covered in the New York Times, all the smarty pan people who, who know sort of like the best stuff, you know, would see it and, and react to it. So, you know, running Benny Hill at 11 o'clock at night had bigger ratings in the office, right? So it was really- There's kind a of quote a, I never thought I'd have on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, you know, television, if you're talking about trying to get as many eyeballs as possible, it's oftentimes, you know, I wouldn't say lowest common denominator, but, but broadness is, you know, is important uh, if you're trying to get big ratings. And the office, we were proud to have it. It did do well for us as a small channel, but it way, it punched above its weight, as they say, in the press, in Hollywood, in, you know, in, in sort of these other spheres of where we wanted to be seen as an influencer kind of network. And obviously the Golden Globe took it to the next level, but it's not like, you know, it was this giant quote unquote moneymaker for the channel. 
um, with big ratings. And plus, as you know, there were only six in the first season and six in the second season. It's not like you're, you're running some, you know, weekend long binge fest or a, a stripping it on your schedule because you guys don't make as many oftentimes with these shows. I can't remember when the first episode of The Office was made, but I guess it was the early noughties, probably something. Well, let's see. There. I went to BBC America in 02. And I think at that time it was being repeated on BBC Two. Mm -hmm. And I think the second time it played on BBC Two was kind of when it even went up a notch in the UK. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I think you and I have talked about this before. You know, and I think credit is a tricky thing in entertainment. You know, mm -hmm. there's no question that my reaction in saying, Paul, we got to buy this now, led us to buy the show and led us to co-produce the second series, which led us to get the Golden Globe. And and there's Ricky and Stephen Merchant, you know, in Hollywood at the at the at the mm -hmm. Golden Globes. You know, had we not stepped up and grabbed the show when we did. They would have made the second season for the BBC too. It would have continued to become a cult classic in the UK or even a broader classic. I think the Christmas special was on BBC one around mm -hmm. that time. And we probably would have brought it over eventually, but we wouldn't have co-produced season two. And without being having the show be co-produced in the States, it wouldn't be eligible in the same way that it was. And so in that, you know, so it's you just all these pieces of a, of a show's trajectory all hinge on these little decisions, you know? So the office was going to become a well-known show, I think in certain quarters and in the US eventually. But the fact that we got into it early as a US-based network and then uh, and that Golden Globe that followed certainly set it on a trajectory. You remember coupling, they tried to make an NBC yeah. version. So, yeah. you know, we think of like Millionaire and, and other shows. So British formats, British TV was being redone. So, you know, again, I can't, we can't take full credit for setting those wheels in motion for what became an absolute monster U.S. hit. But they don't let things, in terms of that slower burn, so in some ways, I guess you working at BBC America, which was a smaller cable outlet, it wasn't like one of the major sort of American networks. And right. Dawn French was quoted in the press a few months ago over here as saying she really doesn't envy talent trying to create new shows and have them be given a chance to succeed because she feels nowadays it's like it's got to achieve high ratings. There's no subtlety to it unless it's really generating ad revenue, attention, critical acclaim, right. ticking all those boxes, shows get cancelled. And I guess it gave you a chance to do something a bit more understated because nowadays, 20 years on, I don't know if The Office would have been allowed to have as quiet a launch as it had and right. still be repeated and still be commissioned for a second series. I don't think people have that patience, do you? Yeah, I think that's probably true to some extent. And it's also true that the streamers and the dropping full seasons at once has also changed the dynamic, you know, for better and for worse. Um, patience from executives and people that were watching the bottom line was always a challenge prior to that. But now you have this cultural form that is even more uh, quick burning, right? That you work on a show and if it's for a streamer like Netflix or Amazon, it's six or eight episodes or 12 episodes that all dropped at the one time, as opposed to, you know, it catching on over a week to week cycle. And then maybe in a case of like the office in the UK, a second repeat in the summer that really did better than people expected and gave the show momentum here. It's like, it's, it, it becomes a bit more like uh, major theatrical releases in the U.S., mm -hmm. where the opening weekend is the verdict in mm -hmm. most cases. So in most films, people can look at the opening weekend and they can tell you the rest of what's going to happen. Yeah. So it really comes all down to two or three days, which is insane. And I think that the streamers have brought that into series TV as well. You know, a show pops on Netflix, it's trending, 
and then there's one right behind it a couple of weeks later. And, you know, does it have a chance to resonate? I, I personally still love the fact that HBO Max and Hulu, you know, roll out their originals on a weekly basis. Me too. Um, but we're old school, maybe, Dave. Maybe it's our age group. Maybe our kids would be like, screw that shit. I want to watch the whole lot the first yeah, weekend. I mean, Netflix is definitely doing it with a couple of non-scripted shows week to week, either competitions and I remember talking to Cindy Holland before House of Cards came out. We mm-hmm. were at Miami at Nappy. And I said, how are you going to roll it out? You know, because, of course, this was their attempt to have a Sopranos level original. And their original thought was in two halves. I remember her telling me, well, we're going to do like a half the season and then wait a month or so and then release the second half. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, they, they balked and decided not to do that. I'm sure that they're very happy with their choice. And it certainly whether it's the stock price or the subscriber count or the Emmys, you can't really quibble, I suppose. At the same time, I don't think as much as Stranger Things and certain other Netflix shows have become dominant cultural you know, moments, I don't know that with that format, you can ever have you know, a Game of Thrones final season kind of situation. You just can't. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Because there might won't be the build it. up like Line of Duty yeah. over here in the UK, which is just finished. And that literally is an appointment to view the whole world's watching. Right. And I guess that's really changed. I mean, you and I obviously were still working, you know, in television well into the streaming services. And mm-hmm. but I suppose the real heyday of Netflix only started to hit us towards the tail end of certainly our time at Comedy Central. And nowadays it's changed everything. But before we talk a bit more about that side of things, it, it's you, you always struck me. So we worked at Comedy Central. You were to me a godlike person there making all the important decisions and hanging out with famous people and I was just the boring person trying to make money out of some of the shows and you when when you were there we always used to have you know our our business catch-ups and our um, chats and you always struck me as uh, kind of an anglophile would you say that's a fair description yeah certainly you know not not to the extent that I was anti say American but in terms of you know uh, British drama, Python as a child. I mean, those were my roots in comedy, you know, and reading Harry Potter to my kids, you name it. I've always been definitely uh, had, a, had a felt an affinity to, uh, to the UK and married a Canadian, you know, which is sort of like part of the Commonwealth. Her mother's Australian. So these strains of uh, Britishness, uh, you know, definitely um, are in me. And that gave you, I guess, the sensibility to maybe also be able to work somewhere like BBC America and understand the subtleties, because the devil really is in the detail, particularly with comedy, isn't it? The, work, the world true. you've worked in, the subtleties. Of, I, I know I'm the sort of reverse of you. I'm very influenced by American comedy when people say, you right. know, what do you like? You know, I'm still glued to the sort of monologues, you know, Trevor Noah and Seth right. Meyers and Stephen Colbert. I can't ever miss one of their monologues any day. And I know lots of people perhaps over in the UK aren't as into that stuff. So I always felt quite influenced kind of the opposite way around from you. But did right. you, you you've, we'll talk about some of the household names that you could um, arguably say you had quite a big role in making. I know you're going to be self-deprecating and say, yeah, but it takes a whole team to do that right. stuff. But we'll talk a bit about it. So when you joined uh, Comedy Central, it was, what year did you did you start? 2005. There? So I joined and Dave Chappelle was shooting season three. Yeah. And then he disappeared and went to Africa. So that was sort of my first month on the job. You know, that show you was scared the Chappelle out of the country. <laughs> yeah. That's not a great legacy. Yeah. No. <laughs> so there was and so things like South Park had been going a few years by then. So Probably what was the, what eight was the years, landscape? Seven over years. There? Yeah. yeah. South Park was, you know, seven, eight years in. John was, you know, 
just you know reaching the height of his powers so john stewart we're talking about john not john stewart, oliver yeah, the daily yeah. show sorry yeah and um you know carell was gone from the daily show but uh but the daily show was was you know that if there was a moment there i think if you recall when someone either it was a study or a survey or it sort of it started getting repeated that people of a certain age got their news from the daily show back at that time yeah um and uh yeah, so South Park, eight, nine seasons in. Chappelle at the height of his powers, though, about to disappear on us. Reno 911 was a big show. Um, and uh, yeah, it was, it was a great, I mean, it was a, that was the beginning of a 12-year run that was a magical time to, to be there for sure. So 12 years when you were um, kind of at the top of, of Comedy Central US and people who are more familiar with Comedy Central UK, there's always been a kind of mothership feeling in a way to Comedy Central mm -hmm. US, the amount of sort of sheer dollars that were invested in right. programming over there was always so much more significant than the UK. As I'm sure you know, the UK now commissions a lot of great original programming, but there was something about being there as part of the place where all the decisions were made. And yeah. so when you think about um, names like, so things like The Daily Show, mm -hmm we don't really have equivalents over here in the UK, right? So we, and we've tried to, and they've just never landed in the way. And whereas you guys have several going on every it's night, true. right? So, so what, it, what is it you think that means that shows like, and, and, I mean, maybe say quickly what the kind of daily show is for people who don't know it. Yeah. The daily show is a, you know, weeknight uh, faux newscast that essentially runs through the day's top stories with additional features or, you know, reporter pieces in the, in the form of a newscast, but is a satirical uh, take on the news. And uh, there's a, a band of correspondents. You have your main anchor. That was Jon Stewart. Um, for many, many years, it's now Trevor Noah. And, uh, you know, but it, it is presented as if it is a newscast, uh, sort of a comedic uh, take on the news. You guys have had a few formats that are similar, but yeah, I guess it just speaks to the market size. Obviously, Johnny Carson, way back in the day, set the set the format for this idea of kind of late night comfort jokes about what's happening in the news that became part of the American, you know, landscape. And uh, you know, when I was young, that was the only show that had that. Um, and a funny story about the Daily Show: Doug Herzog, who was the president of Comedy Central back when South Park hit the air, when the Daily Show first hit the air one of his thoughts, and this is a standard thing in cable television back at that time in the States, was how do we get people to turn us on, right? Because most cable networks in the early days were running repeats of sitcoms and movies, and those things have value, but they're not necessarily going to make you think, oh, I need to turn on Comedy Central mm -hmm. or USA Network or TNT. And so in a war room where they were thinking about plans and budgets and schedules, they wrote up on the board, Daily Show because it's going to be every day. Mm -hmm. And so for now, it's just, you know, we're going to have a daily show. So that was the working title. And, and then eventually stuck. when they made it, it's just, they just call it the daily show. Yeah. So it literally is from the form that it was described on a board uh, when they were planning that they, we got, we got to give people a reason to tune in yeah. every day, something fresh on the air. Um, so Miranda in the UK could be called We Need a New Hit Sitcom uh, instead of Miranda. <laughs> and did um, so correspondence, and by the way, MASH Report is obviously an example of something over here in the UK that's a little bit, um, I'm sure you're familiar with it, right? Do you watch the MASH Report? I don't, know. Okay, I'll send you a link and we'll put something in the show notes, although I suspect lots of listeners will know it. But I mean, cool. we do have, and obviously we have formats, like Have I Got News For You? So it's not right. that we don't have that comedic sensibility about the news. But when you think about um, lots of people, wherever they're listening from, will know John. Oliver so John Oliver really made his 
had his beginnings on the Daily Show as a correspondent, and so did Stephen Colbert, right? That's where they, is that yes. where they both started out. And That's then right. um, I, I talk about Stephen Colbert far too much because um, I'm he definitely is one of my absolute um, comedy heroes. So he ended up doing his own show, The Colbert Report, which was absolutely, it was always one of my absolute favorite shows. So, so I, believe, yeah, I us, believe though, I believe it's The Colbert Report. Rapport, uh, is it? Rapport, yeah. Is it? That, that's how you like to think of it. Is it? Well, you see, well, those years, the Colbert Rapport, well, then he should have spelled it R-A-P-P-O-R-T. But yes. anyway, we won't get all uh, all French snobby. Uh, but so so that show is, it was Stephen Colbert playing a fake version of himself, anchoring an also topical, that's you know, right. stripped show across the So So how, how did you end up coming up with a show where someone played a fake version of themselves? I mean, it was all Stephen, and it was really, it was really a, a version of O'Reilly, who mm-hmm. at the time was the preeminent, conservative, loudmouth, controversial, provocative uh, personality on Fox News. So, and you know, Stephen as correspondent on the on the Daily Show, it wasn't like he always played that kind of character. Um, you know, he did all kinds of things. You know, but um, but he developed that character, and uh, you know, Fox and Fox News and their sort of approach and O'Reilly's success was really growing at that point. And so um, this was Stephen's essential way to take the piss out of the format, the, you know, the mentality, uh, the just everything about that kind of show. Uh, and it was, I think we've talked about this before, when the show launched, you know, it was so intense and it was so dependent upon Stephen and he had to bring mm-hmm. so much energy to every show and there were no cast of correspondence. It was just him, 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 mm-hmm. him, guest with him, end of show, that we all thought two things. One, you know, can he keep this up? This just feels, I'm exhausted watching him just perform like this. It's incredible four days a week. And then also how will the audience, you know, respond? Will mm-hmm. they be up for this? you know, level of farcical kind of pointed satire. Um, And the answer was yes. And yes, he could do it and did it for a long time and people loved it. And it was a, it was a great success. We'll put links in the show notes. There was, there was one thing on the current, you know, Stephen Colbert, as lots of people will know, hosts the late show now over in the States on CBS. And he did the first interview with the Bidens after Biden had won the election. And he, in the interview, he did a sort of look back and there was a little clip from the Colbert rapport where Mm -hmm. he was with Biden um, and having, and it was a, it was a brilliant way of actually seeing the kind of actual subtle difference between him playing a fake version of himself and him now, not to mention the huge aging that had taken place during lockdown. I mean, we had, viewers we did have people i don't think this was true say five years in yeah but in the first year or so whether it would be an occasional comment online or something that would come in from somewhere in the culture there were people who really thought he was a conservative comedian so Mm -hmm. he was they didn't really realize that he was making fun of this type Mm -hmm. of person they thought he was you know he he was that was him and that the point of the show was to be kind of a funny pointed conservative snarky news show uh, and uh, it, it wasn't. <laughs> and now when you watch him on CBS, it's very clear where his politics are, and they certainly don't lie on the Republican side of the fence. It right. struck me going through this weird year that we've all gone through, well, more than a year now, right, um, of lockdowns and pandemics and horrible things, that one of the reasons I was so keen to watch all of the monologues every day they came out was because it gave me a point of reference that I found enormously reassuring because I would watch 
you know, watch Seth Meyers, watch Stephen Colbert, watch Jimmy Kimmel commenting on what was going on over there, um, you know, with the Trump administration and the horrific things that were going on. And I would just think, well, there's a counterpoint to that. So we're over here hearing all of this horrendous stuff and it's the most appalling, heartbreaking stories. Yet there is a movement to do something different and there is a way to still have a sense of humour about it. How important do you think it's been for you guys having that counterpoint to the horror and the distress of daily life? Yeah, I mean, you know, there'll be books and documentaries written about how we process the Trump Mm -hmm. years across the board. On some level... You know, I think uh, those guys, you know, especially in the way things have been the last couple of years, there's an element of them preaching to the converted every night. I'm not sure what difference that they, it makes per se. And um, there's almost a certain fatigue I can feel with respect to kind of, of course, joke, joke, joke. They mm-hmm. can almost write themselves, mm-hmm. certainly, certainly mm-hmm. in the Trump administration. What I thought you were going to say, what I also found during that time, and I think this is still happening a little bit. Is the um, is the intimacy that came with mm. COVID with talent, mm. everything from you know Stephen doing it from home, mm-hmm. people's hair. I thought that was kind of fascinating. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, whether it was you know Lin Manuel Miranda doing something on Zoom. You know, there's mm-hmm. there were so many moments that continue to be, and not like social media where you have a curated Instagram post from some mm-hmm. you know premiere or some performance. Uh, I think it was it was really interesting to watch talent in general put themselves out there. And I don't mean that like hooray for them. You know, I just mean they had no choice if they wanted to reach their audience to kind of modify and, uh, you know, go on a lo-fi, more spontaneous, less polished approach. And by and large, they did it. And I found it really, it kind of humanized them in a certain way. Um, that I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah, the more vulnerable they were, the better, really. I always, I think Colbert yeah. does vulnerability and emotion. I say does it really well, like he's faking it. You know, his response to Biden getting in and the inauguration, and he was, I mean, we saw him cry most weeks, I think, at, this, at the change of, you know, the changing of the baton moments. Namaste, motherfuckers. When we think about what goes on in the digital world and when everything, first of all, had to be on Zoom and, you know, as a comedian, suddenly I was doing everything on Zoom once we realized that was an option. And I always thought of it as not necessarily having to be worse or less because I thought, well, you know, we've always been in the business of trying to make things funny on a screen without an immediate audience reaction. And if you think of it more as what would someone like Stephen Colbert do, given that chance to do 15 minutes, do a 15 minute set on Zoom, that is kind of like doing a monologue at the start of a show. Um, But that's always been your world, right? You've always been a sort of, I guess you were an early adopter of the model of people finding their way creatively on digital before they might migrate to the main channel, you know, shows like Broad City, um, which we can talk about. So so what's your your view about the, the influence, even way back when, when the whole world wasn't on Zoom of digital on what then becomes mainstream television and comedy? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's just, it's inarguable, I suppose, that, that just the, the gatekeepers, the, the ability for people to get themselves out there in whatever form, right? Comedy, yoga videos, you name it, just was just exploded open with both YouTube and social media. And I think um, there's so, so much talent that had a chance to reach an audience, gain a foothold, uh, get noticed. Because, you know, and you know this from doing stand-up, you know, luck, timing, 
you know, perseverance is obviously super important. It maybe is the most important thing of all in any, all these fields is just sticking with something for a certain period of time. But luck has a lot to do with it. Timing, whether you fit into someone else's plans and it makes sense. And so digital just kind of blew that open. It blew it open so much so that there could be a sense of dislocation, right? And not knowing where to look and how to, how to find quality and all that kind of stuff that kind of came with it. Now, you know, we're just awash in so much content. Um, but from a, from a comedy perspective, if we think back to the sort of get on Carson, get a sitcom pilot, you know, 70s, 80s, early 90s, stand up to television pathway. The sort of Seinfeld way, I guess, which right, was the exactly. classic. Ray yeah, Romano, yeah, yeah. you know. Um, and then you fast forward to the careers of people like Amy Schumer and Aziz Ansari and all these people who just were doing stand up and connecting to young fans on social media and growing their touring business, even Dane Cook doing it with emails. Mm -hmm. You know, they mm -hmm. just, all that is really kind of broken down, you know, what were largely relatively narrow um, paths to success. And uh, it's great, you know. Um, and how did Amy Schumer, so Amy Schumer certainly became very big on Comedy Central, right? And she had, you know, she'd made enormous commitments to the amount of material she was going to be churning out for Comedy Central. So how would somebody like Amy Schumer have gone from being somebody on the circuit? Because I know she kicked around for a long time, touring around, supporting other acts, not really making her name. So how, how did that happen, that transformation from someone who was known on the circuit to someone who was known in every lounge in the land? Well, you know, and I won't be able to like nail the progression mm -hmm. exactly because I don't mm -hmm. have like historical Comedy Central talent notes mm -hmm. in front of me. But I would say this, which is that the network was very, very good at cultivating talent. Mm -hmm. And Amy was someone who was in the, we had a, a, a talent group that focused on stand-up comedians. They, they worked with them on their routines. They went out and saw them all the time. They were, you know, friends and supporters and cast them in branded content pieces mm -hmm. and just move them along ladders, the wrong word, but kind of brought them along that mm -hmm. progression. Um, you know, we had a show called Premium Blend where comedians did five minutes. Mm -hmm. And then the next level was a Comedy Central Presents. That mm -hmm. was a 30 minute show. And then obviously a one hour special. There was a whole progression. Mm -hmm. All those windows and timelines began to get compressed, but, but then we, what we would do is we would look for places to showcase people. And, and my memory is that one of the big moments for Amy was the roast. Mm -hmm. I think it was the Charlie Sheen roast. And so you've got this dais, you've booked a, a few major people. Maybe you get an incredible roast master. Then you're like, okay, we have a slot or two for someone who's really talented, who we know can kill it, but is not as big a name. Mm -hmm. um, and she was one of those people. And, um, and that, elevated things um that was before inside amy schumer her sketch show that was obviously groundbreaking so so you were doing a tv version of what comics do on the circuit so we work our way up from five minutes to ten minutes to getting the big pro clubs to, but you were giving people a way to do that on screen so people who were at a level where they could deliver a really solid five and then a really yeah. solid um so there was a progression i think nowadays it probably has become really hard to find that progression on, on a mainstream broadcaster. People are having to do it much more with digital assets and make a name for themselves in other ways. Um, but, but you also were doing that. So if we think of shows, I mean, Drunk History is pretty big over in the UK. Mm -hmm. um, Workaholics and Ugly Americans, less so. Broad City, lots of people listening will know. That's the kind yep. of 20-something, 220-something women in New York. So that was always an interesting example to me, that the, the, the two kind of protagonists and writers and creators, Abby and Alana of Broad City, right 
they weren't even the ones, they were upright citizens brigade, right? They came through that same kind of school, um, but they weren't the ones who stood out. Nobody was like, you guys are going to make it big. We've got to have you on Saturday Night Live. Yet they then managed to just go make their own content online, get Amy Poehler to notice them, and suddenly they got a show. So so were you guys, did you guys commission their online content or did they just do it themselves? No, that was, was you know, like workaholics, and this is true in general. I remember we had Lauren Michaels come one time to speak at Viacom, which was the parent company of Comedy Central. And he mm-hmm. basically said, people used to always send us pages of writing. Now they send us filmed sketches and mm-hmm. things they've made. Like there's no reason not to make something if you have an idea. Mm-hmm. And the Workaholics guys made shorts that led to them getting the show. And Abby and Alon did the same thing. Came out of the UCB, Upright Citizens Brigade um, ecosystem made two series of web shorts. Amy was, I think, in the finale of maybe the second season. Mm-hmm. You know, got noticed, obviously, she's UCB, um, you know, royalty. And, but at the time, they, they then, and she agreed, I think, to be their executive producer, the godmother of their attempt to make a TV show out of it. So they came to Comedy Central, made the pilot. Um, and I think we've talked about this before, you know, and, and it was not a slam dunk decision. I recall flying out to L.A., with other senior executives, you know, and people saying, well, we're not going to do this. This is not, you know, this is not guy stuff. This is female led. Because in those days it was guys eating pizza and smoking, exactly. you know, smoking with a, weed with a, in with their With a bong on the yeah. table in the video game. That was the know, kind of demographic. Yeah. Exactly. So it was, so it was a very Park. female show, I guess, considering very who was watching so. Comedy Central. Very yeah. much so. And I remember saying to this person, oh, you're going to have a fight on your hands because I can tell you right now, myself and a lot of other people, and especially the creative execs involved, feel like this is one of the freshest pilots that has come through the pipeline in a couple of years. Um, and lo and behold, we had a robust conversation in LA and, and uh, we carried the day, those of us who wanted to make it and, uh, and the rest is history. So they did a great job and it was, a, it was a big hit. You mentioned early on going to Nappy in Miami and just like people who work in double glazing or car sales, the TV industry, as lots of people know, have their own really boring conferences, uh, but where some interesting stuff gets talked about and occasionally mm-hmm. interesting talent is in orbit. Right. And I remember we, we w- were in Cannes with Abby and Alana from Broad City and Amy Poehler. And it really struck me how much, and this was in maybe their second season of Broad Mm -hmm. City, so they weren't very starry yet. They certainly weren't known outside the US. But it really struck me how much they they were so similar to the characters they wrote and created and performed. And I guess that's an interesting thing, particularly for British comedians and people interested in how that works in the US versus the UK, is that you guys have a reputation over there of really having big, slick writers rooms and that whatever happens, there'll be 20 writers who know how to polish anything that needs polishing. So how much with a show like uh, Broad City, how much of it was what Abby and Alana actually wrote and brought to the table and how much of it was really skilled writers in writers rooms? I think that that, that other concept you talk about is maybe a little bit more applicable to a big, broad network sitcom, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, family sitcom or something. You know, in cable TV at a place like Comedy Central, we were always creator-driven, auteur-driven, if you will, talent, strong point of view. We didn't have to make 22 episodes a year like a CBS or an NBC. We mm-hmm. might make six or 10. And so people would always staff up a bit to support the writing. But in, in, I can't think of a show that wasn't essentially primarily creatively driven by the comics or the comedic people that were you know, behind the show. So Abby and Alana were primary writers and in the edit bay. And, you know, so it's uh, we, we really we didn't have shows that were kind of 
staffed up abstractly that way in the way you might if you had a, you know, if you were at CBS and you have a talent, but the talent's not writing the show. There's a great talent. Now you need a yeah. showrunner and then you need to staff it up. And you yeah. like, that wasn't how Comedy Central worked. Our, our hit shows, whether they were South Park with Matt and Trey, The Daily Show, John Stewart completely was the captain of that ship, rewriting scripts, you know, driving the creative vision, um, workaholics, Tosh, you know, uh, Amy Schumer, all of, all of the shows were, were very, very heavily driven by the comedic talent behind the show. But there has, it's interesting when you think about what makes a show work. So at Comedy Central, you were, well, you had to have an eye on making good business decisions, right? But you were very much working on editorial, what's going to work, what's the content people want to see and who should be on the screen. Yeah. I was all about how do we monetize the content? So what's going to work outside of the US? How are we going right. to, you know, play South Park all around the world? You know, what are we going to do with these shows? And it says on your, um, it's not often I read out someone's LinkedIn bio on the podcast because, uh -oh. you know, not a lot of lols in that. But <laughs> you say something on yours that's really interesting about right brain, left brain combo. So you say uh, right brain, left brain combo, fluent in Hollywood and can order a meal in Silicon Valley. And I'm sure people listening know, you know, the right brain being the kind of creative brain and the left brain being the business brain. But given the kind of this podcast is all about kind of the Venn diagram of, you know, comedy, business business, work, self-help, how do they combine? Can you combine left and right brain uh, in, in the world of comedy? And how important is it to be able to do that? Yeah, that's a tough question. I mean, I, I can't speak to that as a, like you, as a performer. I think it's, I think it's less true of, of people that are right on point for having to get the laugh, so to speak. But I think if you're going to be an agent or a manager or a network executive or someone whose job is really to shepherd, protect, cultivate, grow talent to their audience. You, you have, that's what you have to balance. You have to balance commerce and art. You know, um, I don't know that that, that same alchemy is necessary to be a great standup. You know, it might be to be, I think something like the daily show, uh, you know, that's a little bit of a different gig, you know, because it's uh, it, you're in there every day. You have a big staff. You have to lead. You have to set the tone. Not true if you're Dave Chappelle out doing stand up, right? Um, you know, uh, and he had his own show too. But you know that. So I think I think of it more as as the kind of combination that you need to drive the business of comedy and to support talent. I don't think of it as so much as it relates to talent. Obviously, mm -hmm. there are some talent who are very good that way. Mm -hmm. um, and, and maybe that helps them build up their brand or their ecosystem of revenue streams mm -hmm. or whatever, you know, you know, I mean, obviously Tom Segura, you know, Rogan, these guys have been smart about their podcasts yeah, and they've, they you know, they've, they've been very savvy in that regard. But, um, as far as, you know, I, I definitely think of that as being, cause you know, you can't, I don't think you can really drive the business of comedy if you don't get it right creatively and you yeah. don't know what's funny and you don't have yeah. a sense of quality, um, but uh, yeah, I think of it more as a, as a combination that you need to be. To be an executive know. as opposed yeah, to talent. Uh, uh, yeah, exactly. I sometimes think it's almost a disadvantage. I find it so easy to be in my left brain, my kind of sensible, rational. I've had a big job for lots of years brain. Um, and then the playful side of what you need to do to be funny. I said, right. for me, I guess after years coming to comedy relatively late in the day, I have to sort of remember not to think about that. And people will often right. say to me on the circuit, you're doing so well. And you, and I think the thing I'm doing really well at is marketing. I know absolutely how to market the shit out of myself and right. make it all look 
look great, but that's not the same as being, you know, the, the biggest talent in the business. So obviously you and I, uh, you know, we're loving talking about all the big decisions we made, big talent we worked with, but neither of us are there anymore. So I, uh, I left to become a stand-up. What happened to you at Comedy Central, Dave? Because you're not there either. No, in fact, I, you know, I left in 2017 and took some time off. And then I, after I spent a week at this like intense program in Silicon Valley, that's where I learned to order a meal, um, uh, all around like. Was this the Singularity University? It was. Yeah. So it was, tell yeah. me, t- yeah, tell us what that, what that was. It's, I didn't, I'd never heard of it till I was researching you for the podcast and it sounds really fascinating. Probably a lot of your listeners know that term, the Singularity yeah. and, and Ray Kurzweil, who's now I think in his seventies and has been honored by three presidents and works at Google and is sort of a futurist and kind of a brilliant uh, scientist and writer. And he wrote the book, The Singularity is Near, which is all about, uh, you know, the exponential technological change, essentially, you know, this sort of, you know, these hockey stick curves of change that we're a mm-hmm. part of, you know, maybe people know Moore's law, every mm-hmm. 12 to 18 months, computer chips can double their capacity. Um, and when you double every 12 or six months, things get really interesting after some doubling. So, uh, they have an executive program where you can come for six days. There were 99 of us from like 35 countries, maybe. And you just get the crap beaten out of you for 10 hours a day with lectures and workshops on. The intellectual crap, I should say. It's not like a yes, good of my yes. base situation. I thought that was, thought that was implied. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, around um, medicine and energy and every industry mm-hmm. and the way that exponential technological change is affecting that. And um, it's a mindset, you know, you've heard of the term moonshot. So it's all about mm-hmm. just well, the, one of the main theses of that process is, is that humans don't think this way. We, we, every day is 24 hours. We wake up, we go through a day. The idea of, of this exponential change is nothing we can actually, you know, compute, you know? Mm-hmm. And so we, we don't think that way. Therefore we don't plan that way. Mm-hmm. We don't realize what's happening even right under our noses. Mm-hmm. And so part of it was like, hey, understand what's happening and then take it back with you to whatever you do in life and, and, and use it. And I met a guy there who was a multiple company founder and, uh, and we spent about a year and a half working on a startup largely around supporting emerging comedic talent. No surprise, given my background, mm-hmm. um, kind of, you know, what we think about as like the creator economy, mm-hmm. the kind of things you think of with Patreon and Twitch and the way we'll soon be able to tip people on Twitter and could we create a platform where emerging comedic talent could connect directly to their fans Mm -hmm. and just start some monetization because there's so many talented comics out there and sketch artists that are just constantly posting videos on Twitter and YouTube and Facebook and just trying to get an audience Mm. and, you know, in the hope of, you know, someone seeing your work who's in the business or helping you get cast. And, um, but, you know, essentially not really monetizing at all, any of that creative output. Um, and so that was kind of our idea and we, and it sounds brilliant. It sounds like something we would all absolutely dearly love to exist. So is that something that might still happen or is it something that you've parked? We failed, we failed. So I have a failed startup on my resume, which actually it's funny. I was talking to a Brit the other day and I was describing, and I often will in interviews say, you know, Oh, I have my startup failed. So I've got that going for me. Laugh, laugh, laugh. Of course you do. And he said, Oh yeah, it's still not like that over here. That would be like an embarrassment. You might not want to really talk about it. Might it's good you're talking about it on a problem. British podcast then, Dave. Yeah, but- and I said, oh, that's funny. Over here, it's seen as a bit of a badge of honor. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and what people always say is, well, you must have learned a lot. And, and the truth is I did. It was kind of like a graduate school, you know, higher education learning experience. 
That's um, interesting that you, in terms of success and failure, because I always thought working in the, you know, I used to spend about one week in four in the US. And it always struck me that people in the States seem to be much more defined by work and status. And yes. I always used to think, you know, when I was a senior vice president for a big American corporation, I never thought I was one. I thought I'm borrowing this job title. This yeah. isn't who I am. I'm not going on right. holiday at the Four Seasons Hotel. My kids aren't going to fancy schools because I have this job at the moment, but it isn't right. me. Right. Uh, not that I was faking it to do it. Um, whereas I think in the States, people sometimes to me seem to be much more, to have their skirts much more blown up by status and work. Is that fair, do you think? Definitely. No, I remember I was in, I was in Italy as a 22-year-old visiting this Italian family that were tight with these German, this German family that I was living with that summer after college. And he was probably in his fifties. It's Italian guy. He'd worked for a bunch of pharmaceutical companies. And, um, but he also like lived in the house he grew up in and made his own olive oil. And uh, I always remember him saying to me, you know, and it's a bit of a cliche, but it's based somewhat in truth, you know, in his experience as an, as a global executive in that field, you know, that, that the Americans, define themselves by their work, the money made the man, the title, the level of status. And that's from his point of view in Italy, you know, that's not what defined who you were. And not only that, it was really more about your authentic relation to the work you do, whether you were a cobbler, a grocer, or an executive at a pharmaceutical company. Um, and there was sort of more honor in work and some of it's a little bit pat, I suppose, but it, there's no question that uh, in the States, money in general, um, and career uh, sort of over-indexed, if you will. I was like you a little bit, you know, I sort of fell into TV. I went out to LA to be a screenwriter and I wound up working in cable TV to, to pay bills and then, you know, got married, had kids and well, this is fun. Actually, I like TV, you know, so why not make a career out of it? But I always, you know, I, I worked to live. I didn't live to work. Yeah. And I, I, like you also, you know, felt like this isn't really me. This is like the game I'm playing to, to surf. Yeah, I mean, I felt very much I absolutely had my heart and soul in it when I was doing it, but I always sure. knew it wouldn't be forever. There'll be so many people listening who've had the shittest time in the pandemic and have lost, you know, job status, security. Right. And you had a fairly big drop to make, right, from a from a decent cosseted life as a as a top exec in a big American corporation through to yes not having anything and how and you, and you then got involved in a startup and you're saying you know failed startup I learned a right. lot so what advice would you have for people who are thinking about their lives in terms of success or failure I mean at the end of the day I suppose you know I it partially it's about your overhead right the lower your overhead is mm -hmm. the more flexibility you have you know and so don't no have question. kids kids well no not that kids kids aren't that expensive I think that that's a bit of a misnomer everyone also always talks about time you know it's like i always remind them you know when you decide to have kids it might take you a year even just to get one yeah <laughs> you know, that's true you don't just have a kid in a month or it could take start... three minutes depending who you're dating but yeah yeah well it could take three minutes to start but even then <laughs> still nine months yeah so, that's know. true you've always got the nine months and by the time you get there yeah as you know then you you begin to adjust so you know our parents you know made it work um i think people are a little bit uh you know they think about it too much Namaste, what would you pick as your life-defining namaste motherfucking moment you know i was i was in india turning 21 uh, i met a sort of swami figure who wound up telling me 
out of thin air, really, you know, my birthday, the members of my family, my mother's name, all this incredible stuff in, in a back alley in New Delhi near Connaught Place. And I was absolutely gobsmacked um, and stunned. And I remember him saying to me, India is a very spiritual place. And I was really blown away. And he went on to sort of predict things about my life, that I would get married at 27, that I would have two daughters and a son, et cetera, et cetera. Cut to I'm 27, living in LA, meet my future wife, tell her the story, as I've told close friends since then, you know, this sort of prophecy. And, uh, and lo and behold, to your three minute point, you know, she got pregnant, we got married at 27, we had two daughters and a son. Um, and by the time we had our fourth child, we were out of family names. And I said, you know, we're crossing the threshold of the prophecy. We better give a nod back to, the, to India. So we named our fourth child Taj after the Taj Mahal. Dave, what's your favorite joke? You know, I'm not a big joke teller. And I think of like favorite bits of comics, but, but I will say, and it's good for a podcast, I suppose. When you ask that question, I just go right to Stephen Wright, you know? Um, and there were so many great jokes that he told back in the day. But the one that I remember was, um, I went to a place to eat and it said breakfast at any time. So I ordered French toast during the Renaissance. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very classy joke, Dave. I think it's the classiest <laughs> we've ever had. Yeah. That and you telling me Colbert reports, pronounced Colbert right. rapport, French theme. Um, the last thing I'm going to ask you is if there's one bit of life advice you could give to anyone listening, what would it be? You know, find ways to slow things down. Time is literally speeding up. It is relative. My kids already have nostalgia for things four years ago. Um, and our sense of time is getting faster. And so whether it's not necessarily taking an edible on a Saturday, but building ways in your life to slow down and, and uh, take a moment is, is so important because everything around us is sadly going to keep pushing us to go faster and faster. And I think there are a lot of stresses that are out there among us folks, et cetera, and uh, finding ways to slow down. That's my big piece of advice. That was my old friend and ex-colleague, Dave Bernath. Now, every episode, I pick a thing inspired by my guest that I am going to try or to do. And this week, I'm going to read the book Dave mentioned, New York, New York, New York, which is about the big changes that have transformed the city over the last five decades. Well, I say read it, I'll start reading it. It is quite a big book. The author, Thomas Diger, and I really hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, sorry if I'm not, describes it as the most dramatic peacetime transformation of any city since Houseman rebuilt Paris. And doing this podcast has definitely made me miss New York, it's made me miss Paris, mainly it's made me miss being anywhere that's not my spare room. So that's it for the show this week. Thanks again so much to Dave for joining me. As always, you can find links to the things we talked about in the show notes. Namaste Motherfuckers was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, with music by Jake Yap and produced by Mike Hansen for Pod People Productions. And we will be back in your feed next Monday, as always, when I will be talking to everyone's favourite design duo, Mark and Keith from Mini Moderns. In 1987, we both end up sitting next to each other in this design agency. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time. 
motherfuckers. Namaste, ma.